Welcome to the Hemon Pulse, the podcast that brings to you all things hematology and hematology only from A to Z, sponsored by Blood Cancers Today. I appreciate you tuning in. I'm your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan, a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I will bring you everything that you want to know in the world of hematology, from clinical debates to clinical trials and to conference coverages. And we've been doing the American Society of Hematology meeting coverages, and today's podcast episode is focusing on chronic lymphocytic leukemia, a disease that is indolent in some patients, but is not indolent in others, a disease that requires no therapy in some patients, but requires therapy in others, and a disease that has uh, shown transformation in how we approach it over the past decade. I can tell you that, you know, back in the day, all of the patients were being treated with uh, uh, chemotherapy, IV chemotherapy, and things have shifted tremendously, partly because we understand now the pathophysiology of the disease, the underlying molecular pinnings of what makes chronic lymphocytic leukemia progresses and evolves. And to help me dissect what has been presented at the American Society of Hematology meeting, as well as how we can approach um, CLL in newly diagnosed as well as in relapse disease, I am hosting Dr. Elizabeth Brem, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of California in Irvine. She is going to share with me what struck her in terms of CLL abstracts and how she manages newly diagnosed patients with CLL today in 2022-2023. So I appreciate you tuning in. Don't forget, by the way, to subscribe to the Hemang Pulse, to rate the Hemang Pulse, and let all of your friends and colleagues know about the Hemang Pulse. If you want to keep your fingers on the pulse of hematology, Tune in always and listen to the Hemonk Pulse. Without further ado, Dr. Liz Brem on the Hemonk Pulse. Before we get started, maybe a little bit about you and um, where you practice and um, and how long you've been doing this and what got you into hematology. All right. So um, I'm currently at the University of California, Irvine. For people who don't know where that is, we're the county kind of smack dab between LA and San Diego County. So we can um, encompass a huge area um, locally as well as some of the surrounding um, inland uh, counties. I have been at UCI for six years now, recently promoted to clinical associate professor. And my I ended up in hematology and specifically B-cell malignancies and lymphomas because of just good luck and early mentorship. I was torn for a little while about an MD-PhD. Did I want to be more clinical? Did I want to do laboratory research? So both as a, um, a college student and a medical student, I kind of sought out some opportunities. I grew up in Buffalo, um, where Roswell Park is, and I did a summer research program. I think it was between my junior, it was either between sophomore and junior, junior and senior year of college. I don't recall at this point. And by happenstance, I ended up in the lab of Myron Chechman, who um, really important in the development of rituximab, um, had a lab. 
Um, and for better or for worse, they would let this little college student just kind of come to clinic with them. And it was, I really early got to see kind of that whole spectrum of from pipetting to them talking about the clinical trial design to actually seeing things get put into patients and seeing how people operated day to day. So I, I credit that early exposure um, hugely for kind of shaping my career. Like I tried a few other things. I pretended I wanted to do infectious disease for a while. I pretended I wanted to do med peds for a while, but I just kept came and coming back to malignant hematology. And for those of you who don't know Myron, you cannot spend time with Myron, especially in clinic, and not want to take care of patients with lymphoma. It's nearly impossible. Um, guy, just his attitude guy. and his energy, yeah, in more ways than one. Yeah, great guy, and uh, uh, I've worked with him. He's just a wonderful, wonderful guy. I, it's funny when you want to try to tell us where Irvine is, because as far as I'm concerned, it's just a good weather place. I mean, you don't have to even just <laughs> just tell us Southern California, and we'll be all jealous. Um, so, so, as a so, native of as a native of Western New York, I never would have thought I would have ended up here, but yeah, here we and, are. And now you can never live in New York, by the way. Just you know, I mean. <clears throat> I know. So, I so, know. so CLL has had so many things going on for it over the past decade, frankly, and and for those of us who have dealt with CLL, have seen a lot of transformation in how we care for patients as well as in how we prognosticate patients and how we decide whether they have high-risk, low-risk disease. What struck you at the American Society of Hematology meetings in terms of, you know, few abstracts, top abstracts that are really clinically relevant in, in your view so we can discuss those together? Yeah, you know, I, I spent some time, and it's interesting, there's not a not to there aren't there's not a ton of CLL oral sessions, and I have to admit I did mostly focus on the oral sessions. So if there is an outstanding paper I want to uh, poster, I want to apologize in advance that I may have missed it. Um, I think that we're seeing, I think combination therapies are going to really be um, huge going forward. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about Alpine for, you know, single agent BTK therapy, and that is still very much in use clinically. But I think that what we're seeing is a lot of, you know, either further follow-up of um, combination studies, you know, MRD-driven endpoints. Um, there was a number of abstracts kind of looking specifically at um, some higher-risk subgroups. Um and I think that we're going to be doing more and more combination therapy. And particularly, I really will see what wins out in terms of MRD guided versus time limited. But I think there's going to be, it seems to me that we are moving in the direction of more and more time limited combination therapies and moving away from, for example, indefinite BTK inhibitors. This is actually a nice frame in terms of the overall face of CLL more combination therapies, more time-limited therapies, and it appears from listening to you that probably more attempts to incorporate MRD in the treatment decision-making, and MRD is measurable residual disease for those who are listening. So let's, uh, let's start with a few abstracts, and we can discuss these concepts as we go through them. I think the one that we can't ignore is one of the late breaking abstracts, which is the Al Alpine study, which is a um, phase three randomized study of um, xanabrutinib, so second generation BTK inhibitor versus ibrutinib. 
um, in, I believe in this case, it was a relapsed refractory population. And it's, it's probably important for a couple of reasons. Um, now we actually have two examples of a newer BTK inhibitor not only having a improved safety profile over a brutinib, um, but perhaps improved efficacy, right? So Xanabrutinib got its label in Waldenstrom's um, kind of based on similar outcomes, but now we have head-to-head -head data in CLL for both Acala and Xanabrutinib showing an improvement in PFS over Ibrutinib. So I'm finding, you know, in my own clinical practice, I found myself kind of really moving away from Ibrutinib anyway, and I think as more and more data comes out, it's going to be really hard to start too many new patients on a brutinib now, knowing what we know both about safety and efficacy. And there was a um, there's a companion publication in uh, that came out I think last week um, in JCO, kind of detailing more of the study as well. You know, Liz, it's actually interesting when you mentioned the Alpine study. I'm curious in your own practice. So. Um, in the Alpine study, they compared ibrutinib to zanubrutinib uh, in relapsed refractory CLL. But in your practice, are you not treating patients in frontline with ibrutinib? I guess I'm trying to get at how clinically relevant it is today in your patient population. Yeah. In general, if I'm reaching for a BTK inhibitor, and to me, this personally doesn't matter if it's frontline or relapsed refractory, um, maybe it should, um, but I'm really reaching for ACALA um, for right now, most of the time for CLL, just because that's what's on label right now, right? You know, people I've, I've asked myself and, you know, other people have asked me, what are you going to do when both ACALA and ZANU have a label in CLL? I think we're all expecting an FDA approval for Xanabrutinib and CLL very soon. Um, I don't know. That's maybe where the toxicity profiles are going to become really important. But in general, it doesn't matter to me if it's relapsed refractory or a new patient. If I'm starting a BDK inhibitor, I'm not starting a brutinib with a few very limited exceptions. So when you were for frontline setting, you're definitely not doing chemotherapy anymore. You're not doing no. BR or FCR, maybe a few patients here and there if there's a reason. But in general, I would say, um, and if you decide to treat, you're using acalobrutinib as opposed to ibrutinib in general. In general, okay. at this point, and in terms of toxicities, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because actually, I, I tweeted a paper that I saw in Blood uh, on the cardiotoxicity of Acala versus yeah. uh, ibrutinib, and um, um, I was trying to discuss that with a few of my cardiology colleagues. And and um, what, what what's your sense in terms of the toxicities between ibrutinib, zanubrutinib, and acalabrutinib, with a little bit of focus on cardiac toxicity? It's interesting, and I, for, for, forgive me for the moment for not remembering the acronym for the um, study that was acalabrutinib versus ibrutinib in CLL, because in a lot of the phase two studies, we were kind of seeing kind of less than 5% rates of, for example, atrial fibrillation um, for both Acala and Xanu. And then when that study came out, the, the Acala versus Ibrutinib study, the AFib rate in the Acala arm was 10%, um, which I remember being very surprised by because it seemed significantly higher than what we had seen, but it was probably the biggest study to date too, right? Um, and it, some of, of course, there's always the selection bias and eligibility criteria and all that, which we could dissect. But I remember being surprised, um, and I believe for with Brutinib, it was 16% in, in that study. 
Um, so that's always given me a little bit of pause. I'm happy to say that so far in my experience, um, I don't believe any of one I've treated with Acala has gotten AFib yet, but you know, it's still a relatively young drug, all things considered. And we certainly know that from the abrutinib experience of the AFib can pop up anytime. Um, in my hands, I've had one person have atrial fibrillation that may have been related to xanabrutinib, but there was a lot of other things going on with that patient, so I'm not 100% certain that's what happened. But the rates have been consistently lower when we see the data from xanabrutinib, more on the order of 2 to 3% for atrial fibrillation. Now, is that selection? Is that that the drug really is... Um, uh, a, a less, you know, uh, have less target toxicity? Um, are we just, as we use more Xanu, going to see more atrial fibrillation? I, I don't know. Um, but I, that paper that you called out, I did, did find interesting because it did quote a atrial fibrillation rate for acalabrutinib that was, again, probably on the order of about 10%. Um, so I don't know if that's real or, or what. Yeah. Or what. And then when, when you get these patients, let's say you have a patient who develops atrial fibrillation, do you, uh, are you managing this on your own? Do you get cardiology involved with you? How comfortable have we become as a hematology field? I can tell you personally, when I was seeing patients, I wasn't comfortable, but uh, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe all of you have gotten some cardiology crash courses. I gotta tell you, I think it's uh, one of those things that the further out you get from training, the less comfortable you are with it. And I think it's um, institutional too. Like I found that um, where I am now, people, when, when cardiology gets involved, I feel like, and I don't know this for sure, they jump to cardio version, whether it be chemical um, or electrical, much faster than I recalled um, when I was training. So I feel like I can rate control people and I'm comfortable doing that and I'm comfortable managing the anticoagulation piece of it, but who needs to be cardioverted and when, and, or, you know, if I can't rate control them, you know, that's when I really ask for help. But I do feel like as a whole, I'm seeing a lot of early cardiology referrals, um, not just in this space, but, you know, for example, um, other patients who have atrial fibrillation for one reason or another, like one patient of mine um, who had new onset atrial fibrillation, we were trying to get him worked up for an auto transplant. How do we yeah, get that under yeah, control to make that yeah, safe? Yeah, um, yeah. So I don't know. I, I, it's, um, I'm, I'm becoming, I'm feeling less comfortable over time. And I don't know if that's just my brain can only handle so much or if the field in, is moving um, from it's just changing too rapidly. I really think it's the field moving. I mean, I think we don't yeah. know how, what's the optimal to your point. When you mentioned cardioversion, maybe there is literature in the AFib who you should do and when. So I think it's important for patient care. So let's move from Alpine. What else struck your, uh, your what struck you uh, from the ASH abstracts? There were a couple, just as a, maybe this is a too niche, but there were a couple of abstracts actually on Richter's that I actually found kind of interesting. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, remind people that's when your CLL becomes DLBCL, and typically these patients do quite poorly. Um, we throw chemotherapy at them, maybe we throw some venetoclax in that chemotherapy, but unfortunately, the progression free survival and overall survival is quite poor. Um, there was one abstract, um, it was 348, I believe, that actually looked at a bispecific antibody, the, the EPCO, um, 
it was only 10 patients. So I'm going to put this huge asterisk on it. So I get that it's only 10 patients, but the overall response rate was 60%. Um, and the toxicity profile was very similar to what we are now very used to with bi-specific antibodies. Which bi-specific um, so was that? Which bi-specific was It was the, uh, I can never pronounce these whole things. It was the EPCO one. Okay. Um, EPCO coaritumab i forget who makes that one but um, okay. in general people have been very excited about that one um, mm -hmm. um certainly in, in dlbcl and, and follicular lymphoma so it's nice to see some activity in a disease where we are often stuck kind of making things up particularly in the second line setting for richter's transformation the um the other richter's abstract that kind of jumped in with some updates on pertubrutinib where they had 50 patients who um, had developed Richter's transformation um, and had an overall response rate of 54%, which again, um, for that population is quite high. Now, 60% of those people had had prior uh, BTK inhibitor. Um, and that can kind of continuing on the theme we've seen with pertubrutinib that um, patients can have, not definitely, but they can have responses um, after prior um, covalent BTK inhibitor. That's with Acala, you said. That was with pertubrutinib. Per oh, pertubrutinib. Okay, yeah, I I read a couple of these uh, papers there. Now, now pertubrutinib is not yet FDA approved, correct? It is not. I think many people are expecting it to get a label and relapse refractory CLL in the not too distant future, but as of now, it's still investigational. Got it. So. These are interesting for uh, Richter's transformation, uh, and this is really the aggressive form of CLRN transform. So we've got two active compounds, looks like, and we'll have to see where these goes. What else? Yeah, I mean, we all kind of know intrinsically, I think, that patients with complex karyotypes um, do not respond as well or do not have um, as long a duration of response to therapy. These are the patients that, you know, classically did not do very well with um, chemotherapy uh, when that was kind of the mainstay of, of therapy. They certainly do better um, with kind of novel therapies, but still not as well as the patients who don't have these um, high-risk features. Um, there was an abstract looking at a subgroup of um, patients in the CLL-13 which we saw some early, which we saw some data on last year. In this case, they're looking specifically at this kind of complex karyotype population. So this was a study where patients got um, chemoimmunotherapy. It was done most. It was done in Europe. Rituximab, venetoclax, um, obinutuzumab, venetoclax, or the triplet of obinutuzumab, venetoclax plus ibrutinib. So here they're specifically looking at patients who had at least five aberrations in their um, karyotype. And interestingly, these patients did not seem to do quite as well with the time-limited venetoclax um, combinations. No, they didn't do poorly, um, just their PFS was um, much shorter um, than the patients who didn't have um, the complex um, karyotype. Um, I think this does kind of fit with um, CLL-14, which was the venobinutuzumab, where if you look at the subgroups, which obviously we should take that with a grain of salt, as many people say subgroups are hypothesis generating, but some of the higher risk um, subgroups did not have as long of a PFS benefit as patients who didn't have those high risk alterations. And I've had this tendency to reach for 
BTK inhibitor based therapy kind of for these higher risk patients. Um, but again, it's obviously subgroups. And it's, again, it's not that these patients did poorly. They just had a PFS of on the order of, say, 36 months versus, you know, much longer for the patients who didn't have these complex alterations. Okay. So this for the complex alterations. We're going to try to go through an algorithm of how, based after ASH 2022, whether your treatment algorithm changes for patients mm. with CLL. But before we do that, what else struck you in terms of abstracts? There was a similar one, and I think it's in the same session, looking at the obinutuzumab, abrutinib, venetoclax, specifically in, again, the 17P, um, TP53 mutation population. Again, just the, um, uh, you know, it being, a, in that case, it was actually a pretty effective therapy, and I believe they were actually able to get away with a time-limited therapy. I think that one thing that I have biased towards is um, kind of the indefinite therapy for patients, particularly with the 17P or TP53 mutations. Um, you know, these are patients who typically had really poor outcomes with chemoimmunotherapy. Um, with the advent of ibrutinib, many patients got very long durations of response, um, but that meant that many patients were on ibrutinib for seven, eight, nine years. Um, so this particular abstract, which was number um, 343, um, they gave a fixed duration therapy um, of the triplet. You know, a number of patients achieved MRD negativity, um, but maybe more importantly, um, the three-month overall survival was not almost um, 93%. Median OS was not reached, um, and their PFS, I'm just trying to try to find that. PFS at 36 months was about 80%. And so I think that, you know, we should be, you know, just as a note, we should be testing for TP53 mutations and 17P deletions. Um, I think with every line of therapy, because it can evolve. Um, and so I think that's a good reminder. It's always a reminder, I think, to to check these things so you can prognosticate and make um, decisions. But I think that more data like this might make me feel more comfortable with the idea of using a, a combination therapy with a time limit of time limited duration, perhaps in the 17P or TP53 mutated patients, which has not been my practice to date. Okay. What else? Uh, number 92, which is not a groundbreaking study. It's obviously following up on one of the Venabrutinib studies. And the four-year PFS was 88%. Which, which, uh, which BTK is that? Uh, sorry, this is Venabrutinib. So this was the, uh, which this is not Captivate. This is kind of the other study that looked at, you know, more or less a very similar population and a very similar, um, study coming out of, um, I think, led by Bill Weirda at MD Anderson. And um, the only reason that this kind of stuck out, I mean, we know venabrutinib is a very effective therapy. Um, it's moving towards, you know, time-limited therapy, you know, the idea of maybe giving people a year of combination therapy. And, um, you know, Captivate was kind of interesting, right? Because they had both MRD-driven cohorts and time-limited cohorts. And what's always been kind of interesting to me when that data gets presented and updated is the PFS ends up looking actually very similar, both for the MRD-guided and the time-limited duration cohorts. So this was a, a 
present this one here is a presentation of a time limited cohort um the really good i think are very reasonable for your pfs and i think that well we're going to talk a lot about MRD and it can be helpful prognostically. I do wonder if at the end of the day with so many of these studies having really excellent PFS benefits um, in these time limited cohorts that are not MRD driven, if in the at the end of the day, we're not going to end up really utilizing MRD to make decisions. Um, but we'll see. I mean, that's kind of early days. And I think MRD is really proven to be very helpful prognostically, but I think what in the world we actually do with it um, clinically is still very much up in the air. Let, let's try to go through an algorithm, I think, just to simplify things to listeners, because I think we're, you know, there's so much data out there. I'd like to try to understand in your practice when a patient walks in the door who has newly diagnosed CLL, how would you approach that patient? Well, step one is, do they even need therapy, right? That's the the ultimate uh, question right now. I think to date, every published data we have looking at early intervention, the most recent being, um, oh gosh, it was published in blood um, a couple of months ago from a group in Germany, um, looking at early use of ibrutinib versus, you know, watchful waiting. And it just sure there's a slight pfs there's a pfs benefit to treating early but it just seems to cause toxicity um now that being said there's an intergroup study currently looking very specifically at the high risk population this is s um, 1925 being led by debbie stevens um, at utah um where patients have to have a cll ipi of four or higher so anybody who has a 17p deletion or tp53 aberration automatically meets the christ those criteria other patients can get there by a combination of some other um, aberrations. The study has caused me to check beta-2 microglobulins in everybody, which I wasn't necessarily doing before. Um, so if somebody's eligible for that, so I'm, I am kind of screening every new CLL to see if they meet eligibility criteria for that study. Um, and then if they do not, um, the next question becomes, do they need treatment? So what is um, the study asking? Like what, what is, what are patients being treated so it's a two-to-one randomization of um, venobinutuzumab um, early versus late therapy. The, it is time-limited. I believe it's two years. And the it's actually it's ambitious because I believe it's powered actually for overall survival to be the primary endpoint, which um, we all know could take a while. Um, but it's also possibly the best way to actually move the needle in terms of kind of maybe arguing that some patients would benefit from from early therapy. Because um, in general, whether you're looking at CLL, right, follicular lymphoma, any of these more indolent diseases, treating early always has a PFS benefit. But the question is, is, you know, do patients live longer? Are the side effects worth it? And those sorts of things. So it's it's ambitious. So yeah, patients either get the venobina um, upfront. Um, they cannot have any traditional IWCLL criteria for starting therapy, um, or they get the venobina, you know, when they actually meet IWCLL criteria. Just as a pitch for that study, the nice thing about it is the drugs are provided no matter which arm people get randomized to. So even if they get treated later, the drugs are actually provided, which is quite But nice. also it's time limited. They don't go on then venetoclax and obentuzumab for a long time. How long do they stay on that therapy? Pretty sure it's two years. Okay. 
So now you decide if the patient doesn't qualify for that treatment, then you decide whether they require therapy or not. Obviously, they don't require therapy or observing. If they require therapy, what are you starting with? It depends a lot on the patient in front of me. So I will, again, at, di at diagnosis and at every so when I'm about to start a treatment, I will check a fish panel. I will check IGVH status. Um, I will do a, um, uh, I will send it for, I'll send their peripheral blood for, for karyotyping because I do have a little bit of bias in the higher risk patients, as I said, kind of towards BTK inhibitor therapy. It's not a hundred percent. I will usually still present the patient both op when I say both options, essentially, I mean, BTK inhibitor or, or venobinutuzumab because in my mind, those are really the, the kind of the clear options. I, I may have come into this at the uh, exactly the time where I don't, I think maybe as a fellow, I remember somebody getting chlorambucil, but I don't think I've ever actually treated CLL with chemotherapy. And I think that probably just reflects the era in which I trained to work so with you, Susan. So, but, you, but you choose between basically venetoclax or bentuzumab or uh, a BTK inhibitor. And if you choose the BTK inhibitor, you're choosing Acala as opposed to Ibritinib for now. For now. For Once now. ZANU is clinically available, then I'll have then some more searching to, to do. Right. So 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 then then it's Ven Obintuzumab. There's no Venrituxin at this stage. No, I, I do follow in that case, I kind of follow just what's been published. So if it's an upfront patient, I do venobinutuzumab. But if it's a relapsed patient, I do venrituximab because that's how it was studied and that's how it it's approved. Does it matter? Probably not. The only way it really matters in my mind is you get definitely get more leukopenia with the obinutuzumab. Right. Um, so that's really the practical way in which it makes a difference. Um, so then, then, then if you're giving either one, do you continue treatment of disease progression or have you incorporated MRD measurements in your uh, treatment paradigm? So I... Particularly with certain patients, I have conversations about it. So if I'm doing the Ven, the Ven anti-CD20, I just do the two years and then stop. Should I check MRD at the end and follow it? I mean, right now I don't. And part of the reason I don't is because to date, while we could hypothesis that maybe intervening when people become MRD positive might be helpful, um, I don't actually know that. So if somebody becomes MRD positive, what do I do with it? Maybe I guess you could argue I'd watch them slightly more closely than um, if they were MRD negative, but I'm not going to treat them at the point of MRD positivity. So outside of a clinical trial at this point, I do not routinely check MRD. When do I think about it? In the patient who's been on a BTK inhibitor and is doing really well, and they start asking questions around year four, year five, whether or not they should continue. Um, I have had a couple patients where I've had that conversation about, should we check it? Would that cause us to stop therapy? And you know, is there data to really back that up? Um, actually, I had one patient who wanted to stop therapy almost regardless of, of what um, any test had shown. He was on ICALA at the time. And, um, you know, he's asking me, should we check MRD? And I, somebody was pretty savvy and active in the CLL society. And I said, 
well, are you going to want to stay on therapy if it's positive? And he said, no. So I said, yeah. well, if your decision is going to be to stop therapy anyway, we we're just kind of, a, he was just at a point with the pandemic where he just needed a break and yeah. clinically he was in remission. Um, so we didn't check it because it didn't. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, it. look, in principle, I totally agree that if you're not going to do anything with the information you are going to get, then you want to do the test, right? It's just right. classic. But um, but but it seems like so you your choices are either a BTK inhibitor or binutoclax or bintuzumab, and there is no clarity into which one you choose. You discuss side effects, costs, things like that in terms of how you're going to choose. If you yeah. choose, a, you said if you choose a binutoclax or bintuzumab, you go for two years. Ibrutinib, how long do you go? Uh, or or I mean BTK inhibitor until disease progression or also time limited? For now, still be, you know, and then the other curveball that's going to come into this is as we you know if we get a labels or approvals for bt you know a combination of ibrutinib venetoclax you know and then the, then we have then the curveball maybe even a one-year time limited therapy um and i don't entirely know where i'm going to fit that into the paradigm but for now yes when i and, and actually the, the discussion i have with patients if we end up going with the btk inhibitor is as of today I'm supposed to tell you that this treatment is indefinite. Things are changing. There's more studies looking at MRD. There's more studies looking at combinations. And so the the, the pep talk I give them is we're going to keep paying attention to the data. If there's information suggesting that if you're MRD negative, we can stop, we'll talk about it. If there's information suggesting if we add another therapy for a period of time and then you can stop, we'll talk about it. Interestingly, I find that um, my particularly my you know I, I don't I don't do a lot of things with hard cutoffs based on age. I do a lot of things based on what I think this person's overall life expectancy is. So I've got a lot of CLL patients in their early seventies who I think are going to live another twenty years, and I approach it that way. Um, and so I find my patients who um, I think are going to have a longer life expectancy. I've kind of found whether this is if this is what kind of bias this is, I don't know. Finding myself really biasing towards the time-limited therapies, just, you know, thinking about how it'd be nice for this particular person to have, you know, several years of their life without being on any therapy. And I'm finding it's sometimes the patients who I think have a shorter overall life expectancy, where I'm biasing maybe a little bit towards the more indefinite therapies, thinking that, maybe it's not going to be as much of a burden for them to take something for a few years, but perhaps I'm wrong about that. And like I said, I'm pretty frank and offer most people both options. So then what do you do for relapse? That's my last question for you before I let you go. I mean, uh, you know, once the patient relapses, if they relapse on a BTKI, you go to the venetoclax and vice versa. Yeah. And then of course the hard part becomes once they've seen both, what in the world do you do? But um, for now, yes. If you, yes, if you didn't see one, you go to the other. But you know, what I've seen is at least it has taken longer time for relapse. I mean, the time to progression is getting longer where hopefully oh, yeah. the field advances. If it takes three to four years to relapse, who knows what new treatments will actually be available for patients during those three, four years. I have a lot of pep talks with nearly all of my kind of patients with more indolent diseases along those lines, not just with CLL, but the follicular lymphomas. I treat some multiple myeloma and particularly with the patients who are kind of hanging out, for example, with multiple myeloma, just kind of hanging out on um, lenalidomide maintenance. 
you know, I, I have been telling them like the field is moving so rapidly that if we can get you four to five years out of this, I don't even know what we're going to be doing in four to five years. We're going to have fabulous therapies when you need something. We're moving, we're moving that way in, in CLL too. I think, you know, we're seeing when you, you know, again, we're seeing the non-covalent BTK inhibitors. We'll probably, I'm sure we'll see more bi-specifics and it'll be interesting. Look, I want to thank you so much for visiting with me on the Hemang Pulse. Uh, it was fun to talk about CLL and what's going on. It seems like it's uh, there's some interesting data that uh, are available, um, and 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 I think that the world of CLL is changing so rapidly. So we'll have you back with more information available. Dr. Liz Brem, thank you so much for visiting with me. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me.